This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Chelsea Gibson, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Anna Stevenson, a a postdoctoral research fellow in the International Studies Group at the University of the Free State in South Africa. In 2015, she was awarded her PhD in history from the University of Queensland, Australia. Last year, her 2018 Pacific Historical Review essay was awarded the Turrentine Jackson Article Prize by the Pacific Coast Branch of the American Historical Association and the Covert Award by the History Division of the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communication. Today, we'll be discussing her new book, The Woman as Slave in 19th Century American Social Movements, which was published with Palgrave Macmillan as part of a series on the history of social movements in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Anna. Thanks so much for having me here today, Chelsea. I'm super excited to talk about this book. I think it's a really interesting and very topical um, subject. And so what I wanted to ask you to do first was just give us a brief overview of the book for our uh, listeners. Yeah, of course. Uh, So this book is really the first book to develop a history of the analogy between woman and slave uh, across the long 19th century. And it's really most concerned with charting um, the changing use of the analogy amongst social reformers, as well as a variety of other uh, groups during the 19th century. So this kind of comparison between women and slaves has foundations in classical thought, but it really gained uh, greater political import and significance alongside the expansion of the transatlantic slave trade and the expansion of chattel slavery across the Americas during the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, Most scholars have analysed the use of the woman-slave analogy amongst abolitionists and women's rights reformers, and my book also starts here, but it also expands the discussion to other social movements, so dress reform, labour, suffrage, um, free love, uh, racial uplift and the anti-vice movements. Um, So this is a really provocative but also commonplace rhetorical device, and it was um, exceptionally influential during the era of chattel slavery and slave emancipation. Yet my book also reveals that a more diverse array of reformers embraced the woman-slave analogy than than many have previously appreciated. Uh, So as one of the most controversial rhetorical strategies in the history of feminism, I think its legacy uh, continues to underpin debates that really continue to be influential in feminist theory today. 
Awesome. Very interesting. So could I ask you, I mean, this is a very big topic as well. Like it's a very um, kind of intellectual topic. It it required you to go through so many different um, kind of venues as you just have outlined. So could you tell us like how you came to be interested in this particular idea? Certainly. So when I was um, completing my fourth year um, honors thesis, which is basically an undergraduate thesis in 2009, um, I was working on uh, popular culture and popular representations of slavery in literature. And I did a thesis that analysed Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin and uh, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. Um, And in the process of kind of reading the historiography of these novels, um, I came across some of the scholarly analyses of the woman slave analogy, and I just found it fascinating. At the same time, um, through looking at these novels, um, I was also starting to look at uh, some examples from 19th century newspapers, so the excellent edited compendium of the Radical Women's Press of the 1850s was a really important compendium of primary sources, which also kind of introduced me to this um, kind of strain of women's rights discourse in the antebellum era. Uh, At the same time, this honours course introduces you to historiographical um, analyses and particularly the work of uh, feminist historiography, uh, introduced uh, students to individuals such as Gerda Lerner, who herself um, really starts to criticise the use of analogy amongst women historians in the 1970s. And so kind of putting all of these um, elements together just captured my interest um, to the degree that I wanted to pursue this as uh, my PhD thesis. Um, But from there, I... I think I wasn't aware that this was going to take me into the territory of also doing really a history of different social movements and their interactions between each other. It just became increasingly uh, evident that this wasn't something that was limited to um, abolitionists and women's rights reformers. It was also of interest to all of the social movements that I just mentioned, but also others such as the health reform movement also found uh, like profound um, interest in discourse of slavery. And I think this variety is what kind of captured my imagination and um, kind of um, encouraged me to continue with this topic. So you really focus obviously on the woman slave analogy, like that is the title of the book, that is the kind of thread that the kind of intellectual thread, right, that unites all of these social movements, of you, as you've just explained. So I'm curious what caused you to want to like coin your own term. And I wonder also if maybe you could speak a little bit about the the function of an analogy itself, right? And the kind of maybe limitations or um, maybe opportunities of using an analogy, you know, trying to say like a woman is a slave, like what, what does that do rather than, um, you know, using a different rhetorical device? So one of the things that struck me as I was um, going through the historiographical discussions of the analogy between woman and slave was kind of the diversity of terminology that had previously been used by scholars to describe the phenomenon. So you have examples such as the sex-race analogy from William Chafe. Uh, Lerner uses the slave comparison. Um, Other scholars use um, phrases such as the slavery of sex, the slave metaphor, the analogy of slavery, the metaphor of bondage I don't think there's anything wrong with these terms in particular like they they do describe 
the phenomenon that is going um, on amongst these reformers. But in some ways, it, it makes it a bit of a difficult area to research because um, you're just constantly um, coming across different descriptions of what effectively in the 19th century at least is the same thing i think there is there's the the situation of change over time so by the 20th century the sex race analogy is much more prominent than the woman slave analogy but from this i just i just felt that there was some sort of benefit for scholars uh, to have a discrete term that describes a rhetorical phenomenon that is going on at one particular time and place um but in terms of the function of analogy, I think from an activist's perspective, there's something very powerful about using language that is controversial. Um, it, from an activist perspective, I believe that they think it will capture the imagination or outrage uh, spectators in an audience of antebellum onlookers. But at the same time, um, that kind of use of outrage is very disingenuous in terms of uh, the way that it focuses attention towards women and draws it away from the experience of chattel slavery. And this is what many scholars such as Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, Elizabeth Spellman have um, alluded to and many others. There's also a wonderful um, essay by a literary scholar, Carla Peterson, who really goes through the the pros and cons of use of analogy in the antebellum era. And she like explains the degree to which analogy, analogy sorry, uh, focuses on the sameness of two entities, but it also completely elides the differences between two entities. And sometimes those differences are more important than the sameness. And I think that that is the downside of the way that an analogy functions in reform and activist discourse. So could you maybe um, tell us like how the slave and uh, women's slave analogy first occurred, like first developed um, in the kind of what you say, early 19th century, really late, late 18th, I guess, early 19th century. Could you explain like who was the architect maybe of this idea and how it became more ingrained and in, uh, maybe institutionalized really in like early feminist rhetoric? So it really does begin uh, in Europe and Britain. Some of the earliest use of the woman slave analogy uh, is uh, amongst Mary Astell, so proto-feminist thinkers, and also Mary Wollstonecraft. And I think Mary Wollstonecraft's use of this analogy in the vindication of the rights of women um, really helps it to um, gain traction as that, that book is widely read across a number of decades, really, and it, it really starts to influence um, different reformers in different contexts. But I think that the woman-slave analogy gained greater traction in the United States just because um, the, the United States is, of course, a um, national context where chattel slavery continues and, in fact, expands into the antebellum era. And so whereas um, most individuals in Europe would use slavery as an analogy in a way in which they were usually quite de geographically distanced from the concept, not always, but in comparative terms, um, 
they were more distanced from the concept than in the United States, whereas um, that is quite a different situation in the United States. And it's really amongst early um, women in the abolitionist movement, so Sarah Grimke and Angelina Grimke, they, of course, face uh, personal discrimination based on gender, so the um, the dis or the unease with which many abolitionist men felt towards having women in the anti-slavery movement. And in this, uh, this is how they start to see um, the, the relevance of the comparison to themselves. And then this, this kind of process of consciousness raising, as Blanche Glassman-Hurst has described it, happens for a number of other abolitionist women. So Lucy Stone, um, Abby Kelly Foster, a number of others. But by the 19, sorry, I always have a tendency to say the 1900s <laughs> rather than the 1800s, which makes absolutely no sense. So I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the 1850s, um, uh, a new generation of reformers who have um, gained their stripes in abolitionism, such as Susan B. Anthony, um, really start to focus increasingly more on women's rights and um, Anthony is of course joined by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and this is I think where the use of the the analogy really starts to change it remains connected to social movement discourse in terms of anti-slavery but it really takes on a new life of its own in a social movement that's dedicated to women's rights. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting about the book is how you tried to interweave like a lot of differing opinions. So you have the people you would expect, right? Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Stanton um, Lucy Stone, the Grimke sisters. But you also try to show how African-Americans and even conservative um, kind of so pro-slavery advocates and later like anti-suffragists, um, how they also utilize this. And I think that is really interesting because it shows the kind of malleability of the woman slave analogy and kind of its opportunities in some cases as well of its limitations. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, one, how like African-Americans understood this, particularly those who had experienced chattel slavery. And then on the other side, the slaveholders who also kind of utilize this woman slave analogy. Uh, certainly. So I think this is one of the most important things that I wanted to bring to the discussion that Discourses of slavery were just absolutely commonplace in the antebellum era and beyond, and this meant that they had a lot of salience for different groups of people who could describe really a vast variety of um, topics, experiences, forms of oppression as a form of slavery, often in very like strange and also disingenuous ways. Um, but because most of the scholarship is a a necessary criticism of women's rights discourse, I thought it was also important to say that there were other people, other groups, particularly conservatives, anti-suffragists, pro-slavery thinkers, who were using a comparison between women and enslaved people in a a far more vicious way insofar as they were using this comparison to maintain the status quo and to ensure that neither women nor enslaved people would um, change their status in society, have the opportunity to change their status in society. And so as much as women's rights reformers' uh, use of the woman-slave analogy is, I think, very divisive, 
I think at least they were using it for progressive causes, which is in direct comparison to pro-slavery ideologues, for example. That said, I do think that um, most white women's rights reformers were using this rhetoric to focus on the oppression of white women implicitly, if not explicitly. And this is really where um, it's the use of this rhetoric is just completely different amongst African Americans. So in the the 1840s, almost did it again, <laughs> almost said 1940s. <laughs> in the 1840s, um, Frederick Douglass as is just starting to gain greater fame as a really influential abolitionist on the back of his um, slave narrative being published. And at this point, he's really unconvinced of um, the myriad ways in which people are using discourses of slavery. However, he seems to become increasingly convinced that this is a possibility insofar as he starts to use it himself. And this really um, kind of follows his um, greater dedication to the women's rights movement and women's enfranchisement. And he certainly doesn't use the woman's slave analogy with the same frequency um, as so many white women reformers, but he and other African Americans certainly do use discourses of slavery to describe the oppression of women. But I think the really important thing here is that they never forget the legacy of chattel slavery. They're not confused about um, many states of slavery being the same. That is that is not something that enters their discussion. They, they know that chattel slavery is the harshest category of oppression, as I think David Rodiger describes it in this context of chattel slavery being used rhetorically. Um, but in using the woman slave analogy, they most often focus on uh, the situation of African-American women first. And so their analysis of uh, race, gender and class begins from that point rather than from the point of analyzing the situation of white women first. Did you find any reformers, this is just a kind of a curious question, like, did you find any uh, white women reformers kind of maybe in the pre, um, like the antebellum period, who were able to use the language in a way that maybe like Frederick Douglass would, where it was, where it was the woman slave analogy also recognized that women's oppression wasn't as great as slaves' oppression, but that they were both on a spectrum of oppressions that they could use to then kind of analyze the structures of society. I think that uh, the Grimke sisters often the best uh, example of this phenomenon that you're talking about. And I think that's kind of um, the result of their own upbringing and situation that they they come from a slaveholding family. They um, have experienced a society directly in which um, chattel slavery is just all around at the same time as they're beginning to gain an awareness of their oppression of women. So I think that the Grimke sisters are much more aware of this kind of spectrum in a way that um, most later white women's rights reformers either weren't or didn't want to remain conscious as conscious of that spectrum. So what you're kind of um, kind of suggesting there is the fact that this women's slave analogy changes over time. Could you speak to like how it changes and why it changes over the course of the 19th century? 
So I think that this um, sense of its change over time is what was kind of lost in most earlier analyses of the woman-slave analogy, um, that there's kind of an assumption that it, it doesn't change. It is the same regardless of whether chattel slavery is codified in law or whether it has been abolished in law. Whereas I think that um, these legal shifts were actually really important to the way in which many reformers conceptualize the institution. So, and this kind of assumption has um, like enabled me to develop what might be a kind of counterintuitive argument but it is that the awareness of chattel slavery during the antebellum era did leave most perhaps not all reformers but it left most uh, reformers aware that chattel slavery was the harshest form of oppression and that this did inform their use of um, discourses of slavery in other analogical contexts however um with the legal abolition of chattel slavery, I think that this left many white reformers, uh, particularly women's rights reformers and suffragists, uh, with this sense that chattel slavery had ended. Of course, um, from a from the historian's perspective, there are, there's many um, historical works which argue that the legal end of chattel slavery was not, in fact, the end of its influence, that um, various types of legal, social, um, voting oppression um, persisted well into the 21st century. And this, of course, is not a challenge to those arguments. But it is saying that um, from a reformer's perspective, there was a strong sense that chattel slavery was over. Let's turn the page. But this also enabled some white women's rights reformers to come to the sense that if enslaved people were now free, then women, who they also saw to be something of an enslaved class, were not free. And this, from an argumentative activist perspective, enabled them to say, some of them to say, that women are the only slaves left in the Republic. And I think this is, at its heart, the the kind of um, most pernicious aspect of the transformation of the woman-slave analogy because assumptions such as these really, really informed um, the women's movement over the last decades of the 19th century. And I think uh, it's just one example among many but a very strong and important example of the racism of the white women's movement in these decades. So while we're on this topic, um, you know, you've already mentioned that you've dealt with a lot of feminist historiography when you're kind of coming to this project, specifically like Gerda Lerner and other really well-known women's historians. And so I was wondering, like, what you thought the impact of this woman-slave analogy had on women's history as a discipline, just because so many women looked back to the suffragists or to the abolitionists in the 60s and 70s to find, I guess, a usable past. So I'm curious, like, what kind of influence you think it, it may have had on on that kind of new emergence of, of women's rights and feminism? So I think the criticisms of um, historians and feminist scholars such as Gerda Lerner, Bell Hooks and Angela Davis are responding to the past as much as they're responding to the present. Um, because 
the the woman slave analogy, as my book details, um, kind of transforms into the sex race analogy from the kind of post bellum era onwards. And this transformation really continues and in many ways um, overtakes the use of the woman slave analogy by the time you've reached uh, feminist and women's liberation movements. But for those um, feminists and women's liberationists, they're finding inspiration in the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and this is the kind of new activist context in which they're finding um, new analogies to again describe women's oppression through analogy. In the 1970s and the 1980s, I think scholars were also themselves responding to the activists around them and really criticising the um, discourses of the activists around them. This made them perhaps much more critical onlookers than onlookers who may have um, been responding to the use of the woman-slave analogy in the antebellum era. But I think it does speak to an important relationship between scholars and the contemporary context in which they're operating. I think that um, these historians will be able to become quite attuned to the uh, rhetoric of contemporary activists during the 1970s at the same time as they were encountering the historical rhetoric of um, feminist foremothers as they were often um, conceptualized. Mm So I guess one of the things that I would like to have you talk a little bit more about is the the difference that you see between like the women slave analogy and the sex race kind of relationship there and like why you think that shift is important or kind of what characterizes that shift in, in rhetoric. So I think that this shift in rhetoric is um quite a direct response to changing legal codes in the during the Civil War era, and it's the fact that um, during the antebellum era, the, 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 the example from which reformers were drawing inspiration was chattel slavery. But as legislators started to debate um, changing legal status for uh, freed people, it the focus was less on chattel slavery as an institution and more as race as a category of oppression. And as as, um, suffragists became increasingly aware that these were debates that were debating manhood suffrage um, rather than universal suffrage in its most universalistic terms, which would mean... um, enfranchisement for people of any gender too. Uh, This awareness that manhood suffrage was being debated in terms of race kind of precipitated the focus to shift to a comparison between sex and race rather than woman and slave. Now these these shifts were by no means absolute. There's of course more explicit examples of the sex race analogy prior to the Civil War and the woman slave analogy persists unabated I would also say, in the decades after the Civil War. But I think that this is still an important shift because it it really demonstrates the degree to which suffragists were attuned to these legal arguments, um, the degree to which some tried to challenge these legal arguments through the minor versus haposet um, decisions, for example, and it also kind of shapes the way that some suffragists uh, hoped 
for and described the potential of a 16th Amendment for women's suffrage, which, of course, we know didn't take place. Um, Women are not enfranchised until the 19th Amendment of 1920. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next, I would love for us to talk about, so we're kind of talking about the more more contemporary kind of impact of this analogy, but I want to get back to some of the sources and some of the topics that you cover throughout your chapters and, and have you talk a little bit about how this analogy worked in um, maybe marriage. If you could start with kind of talking about how this women's slave analogy influenced people who wanted to, I guess, reform marriage or challenge marriage or keep marriage the same way. Um, why don't we start with that one? Sure. So while I've, I've discussed um, or alluded to a fair few scholars who've criticized this analogy, but I think, from, again, from a historiographical perspective, one interesting takeaway is that many contemporary legal scholars find that the comparison between marriage and chattel slavery in legalistic terms actually does have some um, significant viability uh, in terms of the fact that coverture meant that women were completely erased in a legal framework and that their legal identity was subsumed into that of the husband. And the argument is that... um, that is really uh, does have solid comparisons with the lack of legal standing of enslaved people. And I think that um, this makes the comparison, the, the, the focus on marriage a little bit different because it's, it's less uh, ambiguous. It does have um, legal codes to which um, reformers could allude to make their descriptions. And of course, um, Reformers such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton were very well versed in the law. They um, had significant legal understanding, um, you know, going through family connections. And this meant that they had um, really solid examples for being able to describe marriage as a state of slavery. Um, this, of course, doesn't capture the differing uh, social experiences of married women versus enslaved people, but I think it kind of indicates the hyperbole um, that could be used around marriage because it did have these solid examples, whereas um, other chapters, particularly the chapter in the book that focuses on fashion, I think that reformers had much less um, tangible connection to make between fashion as a form of oppression and slavery as a form of oppression. And so that discourse kind of seems to, I don't know, float a little bit more untethered from reality, perhaps. Could you give the listeners um, a little bit of the sources or things that you found with that fashion relationship between this analogy so they could get like a better sense of how kind of maybe seemingly bizarre it seems like I felt like it was a little bizarre when I was reading that um, that they were making these types yes. of, <laughs> types of um, analogies 
It's, it's very bizarre, but the kind of best source for this is Lydia Sayer Hasbrook's um, women's rights newspaper, The Sybil. This is very much a dress reform newspaper, um, which was the organ of the very fledgling dress reform movement of the um, 1850s. Uh, so the dress reform movement begins with the, the Bloomer costume, which is um, popularised by Amelia Bloomer in her own women's rights newspaper, The Lily. And um, lots of fashion... Well, women's rights reformers were very much engaged with dress reform too uh, at the beginning of the Bloomer costumes craze across 1851. And um, their criticism of fashionable dress was that it... it um, it encased women and um, it was very cumbersome for women and that its impression on the, the body was fettering and that this is kind of where the discourses of slavery come into play. Uh, and in a lot of cases this this is not always referring to chattel slavery as an institution. It's using kind of discourses of slavery in a way that is more purely rhetorical. Um, but then during the Civil War, you had uh, dress reformers making many more direct comparisons between the impression, oppression engendered by fashion and chattel slavery. And so I think that's, again, where historical context, like exactly what is going around, on around a reformer, um, kind of influences the um, rhetorical um, movements that they're willing to take. Yeah, one of my favorite things in that chapter was, I think it's Sojourner Truth, who says, I've worn enough bloomers, I would like to wear a dress now, to like kind of the way that white women's demands for their own liberation through fashion was sometimes counter to that of the experience of women who had either been slaves or, you know, uh, free black women, I think who wanted, you said they wanted the the social status of the dress, right? Of that nice middle class or kind of elite kind of dress, um, which I think is re a really interesting kind of point that you made. Uh, could we talk about, is it metempsychosis? Is that is that yes. how you say it? <laughs> I believe that is how you say it, metempsychosis. I am really interested in how that was, if you could define that first for like our listeners and and kind of talk a little bit about how that helped. I don't. I don't know how that related to women seeing themselves. I suppose literally as slaves, right? Imagining themselves. So uh, there's a wonderful book by Gay Gibson Seema, uh, which kind of delves into metempsychosis as an abolitionist practice, and it begins in the early 1830s with Elizabeth Chandler, who. Um, She's really trying to gain um, greater sympathy amongst abolitionists, but also the, the spectators and abolitionist audiences um, mm -hmm. to generate greater sympathy towards enslaved people um, by getting free people to imagine themselves in the situation of an enslaved person. And um, the, the, the way that she... Um, encourages people to do so uh, in the abolitionist newspaper The Genius of Universal Emancipation is through phrases such as um, encouraging individuals to imagine the fetter lying with weight upon their wrists and to imagine um, their wife and children being whipped and to 
encourage free people to imagine these very visceral um, processes uh, which were thought to characterise slavery and in, which in many cases did characterise slavery. And this um, this kind of, I, I suppose, Seema's uh, implication is that this connected free people to the, the kind of tangible um metaphysical perhaps experience of chattel slavery than had previously been the case with much abolitionist rhetoric and reform principles. But then this um, this process gained particular significance for a number of women abolitionists. So uh, there's examples from Angelina Grimke's diary where she engages in these metempsychosis-like um, re- personal reflections um, Abby Kelly Foster has a very extended passage of um, imagining herself um, experiencing an episode of metempsychosis. And I suppose I'm suggesting that these personal embodied imaginaries um, encouraged women to think of themselves as enslaved in a way that was distanced from themselves but since they're also using discourses of slavery to talk about their own oppression of women, I'm suggesting that those distancing experiences of metempsychosis were perhaps a bit closer to home than um, most scholars have previously suggested. So like you're saying that they, by like kind of pretending they were slaves, they began to internalize that understanding of themselves as a slave in that way. To a certain extent. Um, I, I, I suppose I'm not wanting to make any strong conclusions except to say that the internalization of imagining yourself in a position of, sl- of enslavement must somehow relate to the way you're w- using the woman slave analogy to advocate women's mm-hmm. rights. Absolutely. So, um, one of the things, I, the metempsychosis thing is so interesting to me, and, and it makes me want to know a little bit more about how you went about gathering sources for this type of book, because it is so wide ranging. Like, how did you, one, you probably had to travel to America a number of times to get these sources. I'm, I'm just curious, like what your process was. So when I um, began my PhD thesis, I was coming very much from a literary studies perspective. As I mentioned, I um, completed an undergraduate thesis on Uncle Tom's Cabin and Gone with the Wind. And during my undergraduate um, majors, I'd focused on literary and cultural studies. So I was very much geared up to do a thesis that focused predominantly on novels and short stories, um, which certainly um, resulted um, in the novels and short stories do play an important role in my thesis and the consequent book. Um, But I also remember um, that when I was doing one of the early seminars during my doctoral thesis um, at the University of Queensland, that uh, one of the professors, uh, Andrew Burnell, who was in the audience, had suggested very gently that maybe newspapers would also be a good source to consider here. And because I was coming from this kind of literature background, I'm like, no, I'm not going to look at newspapers. There won't be anything there. But, of course, (laughs) he turned out to be very right. And um, newspapers have just provided a wealth of material, particularly women's rights and suffrage newspapers. Um, 
But you're right. Um, when I began the thesis, I was just working with published sources that I was able to access in Australia. Um, but in 2012, I was very uh, fortunate to be awarded a New England Regional Fellowship Consortium uh, travel bursary, which enabled me to travel to the United States, um, go to the Schlesinger Library in Boston, the Sophia Smith Collection at Smith College in Northampton, uh, and also um, to some libraries in San Francisco. And I was all of a sudden able to uh, look at these women's rights newspapers via microfilm, which was an interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, at the Sophia Smith collection, I was able to look at the women's journal, like original hard copies of the women's journal and just page through them, page after page. And that was um, such a fascinating experience because I'm from abroad. I was all of a sudden in the backwoods of where some of these women lived and operated and I was reading their newspapers so that was just a very special experience. I've done a lot of work with Alice Stone Blackwell and yeah and so I have the very similar kind of very visceral uh, reaction when I get to deal with the women's journal. Um, Is there anything that really surprised you? I guess we've talked about fashion which we both kind of understood as maybe the most extreme iteration of this but is there anything else that you encountered that you thought wow I did not expect to see somebody talking about this using this type of language I think for me actually the most surprising thing is actually just the frequency of this rhetoric so that you can be paging through the woman's journal and I'd find myself having to stop and take archival photographs every page. This is, of course, not in every edition of the Women's Journal um, over its, what is it, 60 years of publication or yeah. something. But, like, it, it's still very stunning that this could be used so frequently. And I think that that just speaks to how much it was kind of this undercurrent of women's rights and suffragist discourse by the late 19th century. And because it was so frequent, it just has to have been influencing the way that these um, activists, reformers were thinking. And I think that that's what I'm kind of trying to get at in terms of describing a woman as slave worldview. I think the woman slave analogy more directly describes the um, rhetorical device or the literary device, whereas a woman as slave worldview is more um, a worldview in which an individual is able to see it as plausible and possible that a comparison between women and enslaved people makes sense to them. And I think this frequency is really representative of that. Yeah, you mentioned, in, I believe in your conclusion, you, you talk a little bit about the opportunities for this analogy to maybe move women more towards like an intersectional analysis. So the Grimke sisters are a good example of that, as you just kind of explained. But I was curious, like, if how this book maybe had you think about the problem of intersectionality um, in the feminist movement like today? So I think um, from a theoretical perspective, it's important for historians to place certain theories at the product of um, certain times and places. And intersectionality is coined by Kimberly Crenshaw across 1989 to 1991. Um, And as she developed this uh, theoretical approach, um, it's 
to um, offer a paradigm um, to understand the connections between different forms of oppression, particularly derived from gender, race and class, but also other um, other forms of oppression. So pivoting from intersectionality, which has become a very influential and significant and important um, theory for feminist studies, I thought it was worthwhile to um, to describe the woman-slave analogy as kind of a failed theoretical intervention, um, that not all theories are successful, some are actually bad, and from, from my perspective, the woman-slave analogy can very productively be described in terms of this failure of um, women's rights discourse and the long history of uh, feminist thought. But at the same time, I think that the contestations that arose from analogical reasoning kind of over about two centuries um, began to push uh, feminist thought in different directions so that um, there was suddenly, finally, an impetus to sidestep analogical reasoning altogether and find new ways to describe the connections between different forms of oppression that have ultimately been far, far more successful um, from both a scholarly perspective but also an activist perspective. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious too because this type of analogy doesn't just appear when we're talking about women and this kind of person-slave analogy or group-slave analogy seems to never go away, at least in American society. I mean, we see it right now um, in the signs that people are holding up in COVID-19 protests. And, you know, I'm, I'm really curious as to, like, how, like, how you go about analyzing something that seems to be such a large part of American American culture, at least. I mean, you, you talk about how the Enlightenment had this kind of discourse. I'm just kind of curious if you could talk more broadly about this function of this kind of blank slave analogy um, throughout the time that you were, I guess, doing your research. Um, so certainly, this has enduring implications in American culture. Um, it the dis- discourses of slavery are very prominent um, from the Republican era onwards. And even though I think they go out of style here and there, as you say, they do have enduring significance. But I think it's also important to again return to Carla Peterson's emphasis on the degree to which analogy emphasizes sameness but elides difference. And that this lack of clarity here actually isn't always um, the best way for activists to put forward an argument. So I think that historically um, the use of the woman-slave analogy, as I've described it today, suggests that it actually didn't manage to convince a lot of people of the oppression of women. Um that in, in some ways uh, these suffragists and women's rights reformers were preaching to the choir because perhaps the activists around them were convinced of the woman-slave analogy and perhaps the readers of the revolution became convinced of the woman-slave analogy, but the fact that um, others were using this rhetoric in different ways actually suggests that the use of analogy is not necessarily beneficial to your cause 
And in fact, analogy raises more questions than it answers. And so I think that this is kind of an important takeaway for um, activists of whatever stripe, really, who continue to use um, analogy and particularly discourses of slavery today. Well, that is, a, a, I think, a great note to kind of um, end on. But right before we kind of sign off, I wanted to let you talk a little bit about whatever project you're working on right now. Like, what's the, what's the next, I don't know if I want to say the next book, because you just got done with this one. But could you tell our listeners a little bit about what new research you're embarking on? Certainly. So I'm, I am working on a new book project, but very long time in advance I think <laughs> but it's to um, to persist with the analysis of uh, the woman slave analogy but not the woman slave analogy alone so I'm interested in doing a kind of broader history of transnational feminist thought um, which will span the United States Britain Australia and South Africa and I'm based in South Africa, so I'm very glad to be able to bring um, South African feminist thought into the discussion. And it's to chart the way that different forms of analogical reasoning emerge in different contexts and often in response to different historic, different histories, different national histories. So in the US, um, chattel slavery can quite productively be um, thought of as ter- in terms of a historical analogy. But in other times and places, uh, feminists seem to derive inspiration from different histories. So in Australia, a greater awareness of the history of colonisation and convict transportation and Indigenous dispossession by the 1970s inspired some um, some feminists to pursue the sex colonisation analogy. And then even though feminist thought was um, or feminist activism was far less evident in South Africa during the apartheid era because anti-apartheid activism um, was so prevalent, by the 1990s you see some South African feminists um, as well as feminists elsewhere begin to pioneer the gender apartheid analogy. And so the broader focus of this project is to um, trace how these different race-based analogies emerge in different times and places, how they respond to different historical contexts, and how they operate in different contexts too, and persist into the 21st century. So I'm very excited about this project, and um, I'm not sure where it'll take me, but I'm enjoying working on it. Well, it sounds very ambitious, so I wish you the best of luck as you kind of kind of uh, span the globe um, in your research. So I just want to say thank you so much, Anna, for having a conversation with us today. I would highly recommend your book out your your book to everybody out there. It's really fascinating and, and it's structured so well that you can read a chapter at a time and they really feel kind of discreet yet interconnected. They're great for classes, <laughs> I would say, I think. <laughs> thank you very much. You're very welcome. All right. Uh, just to reiterate, we were talking with Anna Stevenson. She was the author of The Woman as Slave in 19th Century American Social Movements. Thank you so much, everybody out there and New Books Network for listening. Goodbye.